Hey everyone, and welcome back to Country Music Made Me. Thank you so much for joining us once again. If you haven't already, please be sure to check out our website, countrymusicmademe.com. There you can listen to all of our episodes and you can also sign up for our newsletter to receive exclusive content straight to your inbox. All you have to do is go to countrymusicmademe.com and hit that subscribe button. Now for today's episode, we are excited to welcome Randy Rogers of the Randy Rogers Band. Now the group celebrated their 20th anniversary back in 2020. Last year, they released their latest single, Picture Frames, and they're excited for more new music later this year. They'll also, of course, be hitting the road for what they consider their never-ending tour because, well, it began back in 2000 when they formed, and really it hasn't ended. They've been constantly on the road when they aren't writing new music. So please enjoy our conversation with Randy Rogers. Whereabouts are you living now? What, where do you call home? Well, we're in my home right now in New Braunfels, Texas. Oh, okay. And you've lived there for quite a few years now, haven't you? Situated in between Austin and San Antonio. I've lived here on and off since I graduated college. I went to school in San Marcos, which is the next town over. Um, so yeah, on and off since 2000. And so over the past 22 years, since the start of the Randy Rogers Band, has there ever been a time where you considered moving to Nashville? or thought that was the move you had to do within this career? Or have you always had the thought of just staying in Texas and, and not worrying about that move? Well, I have a, I've had a condo in Nashville for over 10 years. Oh, okay. So that's the solution, right? <laughs> Raising my family here and then go up there and write and have a spot there too. So um, moving in Nashville, like and raising a family there was never, in my mind, what I wanted to do for my own family and, and my kids, I think like, you know, after maybe they're, they're grown and they're 11, eight and four. So we got some time, right? Right. After they're grown, you know, Nashville could possibly be something on my radar. Obviously it's not just my decision. Um, but, and I love it there. I love my, my, my condos, right. You know, in Midtown there in Nashville and it's, through the years, I've written four or five albums there. So I've, I've, the majority of music that I've created has been, you know, there at that condo. Well, wow. So do you find your creativity opens up when you get there? It does. I, th I think that like it gives you a purpose. Like I, I don't go there to, you know, quote unquote party or go out every night like normal Nashville trips for people would be. I I, I book ride, rides with friends of mine and, and co-writes with, you know, new people and I, I write for Warner Chapel. So I have a publishing company that can book me rides with people that maybe I wouldn't run into in Austin um, or in Texas. And so that's nice to have that option to uh, broaden your horizons. Um, and, and for sure, I mean, like I, I, my life is busy, right? Kids and, and touring as much as we tour, to, you know? Yeah, I was, exactly. I was gone maybe 175 dates, you know, last year from this house. And so, um, life here is busy. Life at home is busy. Life on the road is busy. And I cannot, for whatever reason, figure out how to be creative on the road. It's uh, it's just not conducive to that. And right. so it is my refuge in a sense. Um, I get in that condo. I've got this great D35 guitar that I've been playing since, you know, 20 years. And I've written so much on that guitar. It's kind of like my little safety net or, you know, safety blanket. So. 
Right. Yeah. And now we have new music to talk about, but I want to talk a bit about the journey first before we get to the new music, because you celebrated 20 years, two years ago in 2020. Unfortunately, it didn't go as well as you hoped it would in celebrating that. But now we have picture frames coming out, which is a little look back. It's allowed you guys to look back on the past 20 years as a band. And I wanted to look back on that a bit. And I want to start way at the very beginning and your beginnings in music. Now, I saw different reports. I saw one article that said great grandmother and a few articles that said grandmother that started you on the piano. Was that your grandmother? Great grandmother. She Was it your great grandmother? Oh, okay. Yeah, she lived down the street, really from the neighborhood I came home from the uh, hospital in. And so my mom would let me walk. She would watch me walk down the sidewalk. You know, it was only five or six houses down. But, you know, and she had a piano and um, we would sit and play and she would sing to me and she loved doing that. Um, and so, of course, I, I enjoyed my afternoons with her when my mom would have to go run errands or whatnot. And, you know, that was the beginning. I mean, I think I could... I could always hear a melody and I could always, you know, sing and, and was, it was just given that gift. And, you know, she, she probably saw that um, in me and, you know, and she, I know that she enjoyed those times spent, you know, as a, as a youngster, she was, she was probably in her seventies at that moment, you know? Oh, okay. So she had been playing in church and uh, knew, knew the Baptist hymnal front to back and, and so that's where I started. So. And do you remember back in that time, it probably helped because it was your grandma teaching you, but I talked to a lot of country artists who started on the piano, but really didn't enjoy it. And it didn't last too long. But for you, because it was time spent with your great grandma, did that help you enjoy it a bit more than being forced to play it? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I did take piano lessons and quit just like every other kid. Right. And you know, I, I played by ear. I couldn't read music. And, you know, I was given the gift of being able to listen to something on the radio and then, you know, figure it out on the piano or the guitar you oh, know, okay. at a young age. And so, you know, my dad was a preacher, um, Southern Baptist minister. And so then I was playing like, <clears throat> you know, music in church every Sunday. So I literally have been on stage since around the age of about 10 or 11 every weekend. Um, I'm 43 now. So that's a that's a long time to be honest. <laughs> that is. And as far as the country music influence, talk about your dad. And I saw that you had talked about him listening to Glenn Campbell quite a bit growing up. And so talk about that country music influence and when that started to come into your life and you starting to take notice of how much you enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, his record collection was uh, the Beatles. It was uh, Glenn Campbell. It was uh, Michael Martin Murphy, uh, he was a huge fan. Um, and of course, all the Willie and Waylon records and, and stuff that we had, you know, here in Texas that, you know, every dad had, you know, those <laughs> records. Right. Um, so, so, you know, I, I was listening to that. He, he, he and a friend of his would sit around and play guitars for fun and at uh, barbecues or campfires every weekend. It seemed like they were doing that. Um, and his best friend's a guy named Steve Schick, who still plays out and plays live music himself. And oh, okay. so I was, I was embedded, you know, not only in the church, but like it was a part of my life um, socially as well um, from an early age. And, and so I, I think that, you know, looking back, you know, 
some kids, their dads are their baseball coach and, and, you know, some kids uh, can hit a curveball, you know, and, and some kids are six foot five and can dunk a basketball in the eighth grade, you know, and that wasn't me, you know, I, I was uh, average in height and uh, I could play and sing guitar and no one else could. So I just gravitated towards, you know, music because it was what I was, you know, God, God gave me that talent. And I was, uh, I was lucky in the sense that I did have something to attract the opposite sex and that didn't have to be hitting home runs. Right. Yeah, exactly. And now you talk about one of the records, your dad listening to uh, Michael Martin Murphy. Now you were able to sing on one of his records in 2018, I believe. And now along this 20 year career, what has it been like to follow this and be able to work with your idols and meet your idols and do all these things with the people that you grow up idolizing? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm 43 now and, you know, kind of, let's just say in the prime of my life and career, um, it's, it's fascinating because it seems like it's happened so fast. Right. I mean, yeah. Yes. We've been in a band for 22 years in October and, um, and I've seen a lot of highways and I've seen a lot of States and a lot of countries and, and got to do, go and do things that, you know, other musicians probably only dream of. And, and one of those things, and, you know, I think I set these goals for myself. Well, I know I did was to meet heroes and, you know, I got to meet Merle Haggard and um, had the fortunate experience with Willie Nelson several times and, and collaborated with him on a song and, like you just mentioned, you know, singing with Michael Martin Murphy, we sang Backsliders Wine together. Um, Ray Wiley Hubbard appeared on an album of mine. Jerry Jeff Walker uh, made a record with Robert O'Keen. I mean, I guess I'm not bragging, but just the, the if, if you just pause and look back, I'm very grateful and, and very thankful um, that I've had the opportunity to collaborate with so many people. Um, Alison Krauss was even on a, a record of ours. And so, you know, I don't know that those are, you know, uh, awards or whatever you want to call them, accolades, uh, right. Milestones moments, but I encourage young artists to, to seek out the knowledge of, of your heroes. I mean, I, I appeared on Rodney Krell's record. Um, that was a dream come true for me. One of the greatest songwriters of all time um thought enough of me to ask ask me to appear on his record you know so you know that I haven't had a bad experience with any of any of my heroes and and I've been fortunate and I've been put in situations uh that I've had you know meaningful conversations and uh and in some ways life-changing experiences with with some of those people uh George Strait being you know, probably at the top of that list, right? That have really given me confidence um, in my career. And along those times, you mentioned how fast this career goes. When you're having those moments with these individuals, do you really have to stop and make sure you take it in and that it doesn't just fly by as another thing on the calendar that needs to get done so you can move on to the next thing? Well, you know, there's some science involved in that. You know, your heart rate elevates. I don't know. I'm sure you get starstruck by. I am um, right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I just got, I just got done at the grocery store. So don't. <laughs> um, you know, it, 
it, your heart rate's elevated. You're you need a picture, of course. Uh, you know, soaking in those moments. Uh, I know that you know my one of my favorite all time artists is Merle Haggard, and you know I got to play in open shows for Merle and several occasions got to to talk music and pick his brain and um, and be around him. And he was such a gentle at, at that point in time. I, of course, I didn't know him in his thirties, but <laughs> right. he was such a gentle, gentle giant. I mean, a small statured man, but just a giant in our industry. And, and he <clears throat> was kind enough to, you know, sign a guitar for me and, and talk to me about the show and how he was feeling that day and what he was working on, you know? And so, um, just looking back once again, those moments have given me so much confidence to uh, keep doing this. And the journey that brought you into those moments. Let's talk about that a bit. Let's talk about going into college. Now, I read that there was some backyard bands maybe that you were playing in. Just talk about the year or two leading up to college and your focus on music. Was it a focus or before that, was it still just something that you were doing for fun? Well, I quit the JV basketball squad my junior year. <laughs> so then I had plenty of time to focus on music. And, you know, I was writing songs and I was performing at local Opry's. Uh, I won third place at the uh, Burleson, Texas uh, Jamboree. Uh, I sang Tim McGraw's Don't Take the Girl. Uh, oh, nice. And how old were you then? I was 15. Oh, okay. Um, and so, you know, looking back, I was actively pursuing it. I was opening mentioned my dad's friend who was a musician and played shows and I would open for him and load the PA in and load the PA out. And uh, we'd play at, you know, state parks and VFW halls. And, you know, I was teaching guitar lessons at the age of 16 at the local music shop in my hometown of Cleveland, oh, wow. Texas. And um, I was in kind of like, you know, Pearl Jam was really big. Nirvana was really big. Um, grunge was really big. And so, you know, I had an amplifier, I had an electric guitar, I was had my hair long and I was, you know, smoking pot and you know, I was a kid and right. I was I was trying to be a musician and I was trying to find out what that really meant. But when I would write songs, um they were country, you know, and like the, the whole nineties country thing like was I mean, I, I probably could sing you every word to every song that was, you know, top twenty in the nineties. So I was I was listening and I was playing along and I was I was writing songs that were what you would have considered at the time to be top 40 country songs. Oh, OK. Um, and I was performing those songs um, for groups of people, whether it be at a church event or an opera performance. Um, you know, I was, I was playing shows even then, you know, away from church. And you went off to Texas State. Now, was there ever a side of you that considered not going to college and just chasing a career in music without actually doing that? Well, no, because like most kids, I wanted the hell out of my hometown, you know? Uh, right. I just felt like it was confining me. And um, just like every other rebellious child, I was, I was ready. My out was college. I mean... I was never a straight a straight A student. I did not get a scholarship uh, paid for college. My parents helped me pay for some of it, and I got student loans for the rest. Um, but I knew uh, I'm the type of person that finishes, and so once I got there, um, it took me a while to find a major that I was 
comfortable with, but I finished, it took me five years, but there wasn't a time when I thought, no, I didn't need a degree. I got, I got a degree in public relations with a minor in business. So I'm using my degree right now, if you think about it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, I, I really enjoyed college. College is where I became the, the human that I am today. Um, finding, finding a sound, finding a home at Cheatham Street Warehouse, uh, finding Kent Finley, finding open mic night at Cheatham Street. Um, the evolution of the, the boy into a man definitely happened in San Marcos, you know, at the university with the friends that I made there the contacts that I made there in the music industry and uh, eventually, you know, finding my Tuesday night residency at Cheatham Street as the Randy Rogers band in uh, October 3rd of 2000. Yeah, let's talk about that transition and talk a bit about Kent and the influence that he had on your career. Unfortunately, he's not with us anymore, but just talk about what he meant, especially back then when he saw something in you and said, you're playing solo right now, you get a band behind you and you can have this regular Tuesday night spot. At that point in in your life, what did that mean to you? And would you be here where you are right now without him and that little push no i mean that's there would not be randy rogers band without cheatham street without kent um kent was a thinker and uh when you asked him a question uh he didn't immediately answer he would ponder it and then give you a very detailed um thoughtful um answer or in my case advice um and you know he he pushed me to, to be creative and write every week. And so, um, and rewrite, he would, you know, his kind of motto was write, 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 rewrite, you know, just <laughs> right. always, always be writing, always be thinking. And, you know, even to this day, like I, I find myself doing things that he taught me, like, like, let's say my wife wants us to watch a rom-com. Um, I'll, there'll be a line in the, in the movie and I'll, I'll jot it down, you know, um, that's something that he taught me. I'll overhear a conversation at a bar with two, you know, a couple, and I'll hear something someone says that makes me stirs an emotion. I'll jot it down and then I'll forget about it. And, you know, months later, I'll look through my phone or through my notes and you have 50 song ideas, you know, and, and just things like that that had nothing to do with actually playing shows that that Kent would give me little tidbits on and information about, you know, how he crafted his songs and how, you know, people internalize those words that you put down on a piece of paper and that becomes actually part of their life. And, and so there, there were just so many things and so many intangibles that, that I learned from Kent, from Kent and from Cheatham street. And, and that's at that moment too, like there was, there were so many artists that were there that were so good. I mean, Bruce Robinson was playing Open Might Night sometimes and had been for years. Um, Slade Cleves was in there. Adam Carroll was in there. People that could really craft a song um, were showing up. And every once in a while, somebody really famous, like Todd Snyder would show up. You know, it, there was just so much. It was like the the 
the music industry and songwriting was my oyster, you know, it was, that's how it felt. And there, it was a feeling of community when you walked into that building and then, you know, Kent trusting me to put a band together and start playing every Tuesday was definitely the catalyst um, to what we have created over the last 22 years. And you talk about all the people that were going through and playing the open mic. And I imagine there was a lot of students going through there. Now, did you ever ask Kent or talk to him like in years past after he allowed you to play that Tuesday night? Did you ever sort of sit him down and say, what did you see in me? Like, why me? Well, yes. And, you know, I, I spent time with Kent before he passed um, several moments along with him, you know, and I think he, without being a, a, an arrogant statement, I think that he had a great ear, you know, and, and I was writing songs that were melodic and that were um, heartfelt, that were genuine. And a lot of that was because hey, I had, I'd had just literally lost the first real girlfriend that I had an intimate relationship with, you know, broke my heart, like right before I walked in the door of that place. And oh, so really? A lot of those songs were coming from a real, you know, honest standpoint. And I, and I think that he was attracted to the, to the honesty. And I think that because of those years of playing in church and the, the Baptist hymnal being driven into my head, the melodies I think popped. And that's, so that's what he told me. He said, you had, you had great melodies and you had sincere lyrics um, and, and a distinguishable voice. You know, my voice isn't perfect. My voice isn't um, classically trained. It's, he, he just always said that he, that he believed me when I delivered, if that made sense. Right. Yeah, for but sure. Those were things that I could build on. Those are things that I could work out. And um, so I think that's, that's probably why he, quote unquote, you know, gravitated towards me at that time. I was hungry and I was hungry. You know, right. Yeah. There's something to be said about like, I didn't have, I didn't have money behind me. Um, I was working multiple jobs. I, uh, I wanted it really bad. Well, that's what I was going to ask you when you formed the band at that point, was that it? Was that the only thing you were doing and it didn't matter what you had to do? You were going to make this successful? Well, I'd started an internship at a propaganda group, which was a musical uh, music um, company, a PR firm. And I was I'd worked my way into past the internship and now I was a booking agent. And so I was oh, okay. working at the outlet mall in San Marcos, was huge outlet mall. I was working at Eddie Bauer. Um, so I was, I was clocking 25, 30 hours a week there. The other 10 or 15, I was spending on booking bands. I had an agency called Randall Wade Booking Agency. I changed my name because Kent told me, don't cross it. Oh, okay. Um, Randy Rogers and Randall Wade. My real name is Randall Wade Rogers. And so I use Randall Wade Booking Agency. So I was booking these bands and local talent and so then I started booking Randy Rogers band as Randall Wade. So I would lie to people when I would call them pretending to be a different agent when really it was me. Right. And so then I would place in the Randy Rogers band in some of these venues that I was, had been booking for a year or so for these other artists. 
Oh, okay. So all the while holding down a job, finishing college and, you know, trying to write. So it wasn't, it wasn't just a walk in the park. I had a, a lease on a Ford um, F-150 five-speed single cab. And uh, when the lease was up, we took every bit of the money we had. We took a loan out to buy $2,400 1988 Suburban. And that was our first touring vehicle. <laughs> Beaches. That's awesome. And then as far as the recording goes, you did record a live album right away out of the gate. But when it came to your debut album in June of 20, 2002, was that an album that really set you on the way? that really set you up that this is the band and this is who we are moving forward. And we are going to be successful in this. No. So, so the guys that played on that record, um, they all moved on. Oh, okay. Um, except Jeffrey, our guitar player. He was in the band at that moment. Um, so roller coaster really was the record that kind of solidified the, the, the band that you see on stage now is the band that played on that record. Right. Um, that was really the the beginning of what is now us. For me, the Lucky Used to Be album, which turns 20 in June. Thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> um, that was my first attempt in the studio. That was my getting my feet wet. That was me being very green, knowing what I wanted, but not knowing what I was doing. Not that I know what I'm doing now, but that was the first attempt to be a professional. You mentioned roller coaster. Now that was the first time I believe that you worked with Radney Foster mm -hmm. and you're back with him now working on your latest project. And so what has that relationship been like? What it, was it like working with him back then? Was he someone that really influenced you back then and helping you sort of find your sound and learn what it is to be a professional, not only in the studio, but within this career? Well, yeah, I mean, I was a huge fan of his. I was a huge fan of his albums. Um, I wanted to sound like him. I wanted to write songs like him. Um, he taught me so much. He, he did become my, my, if Kent Finley was my first mentor, you know, Ratney was my second. And so not only about the, the profession of a musician, but about being a man, being a leader, um, being a husband, uh, so much that I learned from Randy and still do. Um, but yeah, he, he took what we had been doing live for so long and just basically put us in the studio and said, play it like you feel it, you know, play it like you've been playing it. Right. And I think one of the reasons the roller coaster was so good was because we've been playing those songs live for almost a year by the time we got them in the studio. Oh, okay. So we kind of cultivated this sound. We knew what we were. And Rodney just, you know, dialed it in. And as far as the performing goes, now in 2007, you were named by Rolling Stone magazine as one of the top 10 must-see artists of that summer. You're named with U2 and the Stones and some other great bands. But I found it interesting. I saw an interview in 2005 that you did. And one of the quotes from that was, the one thing that I've struggled with myself is being the constant entertainer. I feel like the songwriting and the music comes relatively easy 
compared to getting up there every night and emceeing the crowd and leading the party. So talk about your transition on the stage and how you have grown over the years. And was there a point where you started to feel more comfortable on the stage? Great question. I, I think that I still don't feel comfortable on stage. You know, it's, it's such a love-hate thing, right? I love music. I want everybody to hear my songs. I love when I do have the fortunate experience of writing a great one. I want people to hear it. Yeah. Um, I'm not the, I'm not, who's really good at it that I'm, that I'm friends with. Um, I'm not Dirks. Dirks <laughs> right. right. Like, like he's everywhere. Like he's, <laughs> yeah. the energizer bunny, you know, um, my heroes kind of stood there and sang like William and George. So sometimes I feel like, you know, it's not the most comfortable thing for me to stand up there and be the MC. However, after what, 300 shows for the first 10 years a year and now 150 to 200 shows a year, I've, I've done it a lot now. So yeah, I feel much more comfortable in my skin on stage than I used to in 2005, I think is when you said that interview was. Yeah, it was. I've played a few shows since then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, What's funny is like now we go song, 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 right? Right. So there's not a whole lot of time for me to like screw up, like put my foot in my mouth, uh, proverbial, uh, say something stupid. But there was, you know, there were years where I would rant and rave because I was full of piss and vinegar and I would talk it on stage and, you know, angry at country music and it needs to be country again and all this rapping right and my country music's real you know there were there were, i'm sure there's board tapes and videos and we kind of losing my shit on stage and nowadays it's not that i'm not fired up i just uh it's better sometimes to, to say nothing right yeah and you talk about yeah that sort of ranting when you're younger and country music staying country music now you're someone who has stayed true to his music throughout your career has there ever been a time where you felt the need or felt the pressure to chase top 40 or chase another style of music to find other success that you hadn't found in the past well i mean there's always pressure um i i still wish that we could have been played on top 40 radio and somebody told me i'm not dead yet the other day when i when I made that comment, um, you know, one of my goals in life was to have a number one song, you know, and, and it, you know, it didn't happen. It hadn't happened yet. But as far as like the pressure to sound like someone, that's opposite of what you're supposed to do as an artist. It's opposite of what you're supposed to do as a painter. That's opposite of what you're supposed to do as a, a novelist. You're not supposed to be like someone else. You're supposed to be yourself. And so, I think the longevity of our career speaks to itself. The fact that the sound that we've created is the five guys uh, that's, that essentially started the band. And we stay true to that. And I, I can't take credit for that. You know, it's a group effort. So if I was ever trying to drag us this way, they would drag me back to the middle, you know? Right. So there were songs that I, looking back, um, songs we didn't cut that ended up being number one for other people right that 
I think about that sometimes, but like if I would have cut drink a beer, um, you know, Luke Prime probably wouldn't have had a number one. So <laughs> gotta give it to someone else sometimes, right? And with the new material coming out of 2020, you mentioned you did have a lot of dates last year. So you've been able to get back into the swing of things, but having that year off and then going back into the studio with Radney, do you almost have a different focus in going back into the studio with him and reliving those days 18, 20 years ago? Well, I I think I wish I could take credit for this comment that I'm about to make, but um, I'm going to give it to my coach. I have a coach, right? Everybody needs a coach. Yeah. So finding the why, I think is what I'm looking for. Um, You get so bogged down with the music industry and touring for 22 years and record labels and the comings and goings of record labels and um, all the gigs and the gigs and the gigs and the gigs and the gigs, right? And the yep. TV performances and the interviews. And it, even you do it as long as I've done it, sometimes you lose track of the why. Why the hell did I do it in the first place? Why did I, why did I stalk Radney Foster literally opening shows for him and, and following him to his, his hotel to ask him, what I needed to do next to become him. Right. Um, why was I doing that? So that I think maybe that's what I'm looking for. Was it to make money? No, not the beginning. Now do I have a family to provide for? Yeah. Um, but what were those original thoughts? And I think it was to like I mentioned earlier, to change something, you know, to, to be different, to stand apart, um, to be unique, um, to touch people's lives, to be the soundtrack to people at their weddings and funerals and falling in love and missing someone. Um, all those things were really why I started. And so Working with Radney again uh, is full circle for me because it is bringing up some of those those whys that were blazing on fire when I was 20 years old. And so was it a conscious effort to jump back in with him to try and find those whys? 100%. 100%. You know, the, there's a thing called burnout. Sure, you deal with it in your industry. Absolutely. You work so much. You're so busy. You know, sometimes you don't necessarily enjoy what you do for a living. That happens to all of us. Yeah. You know, musicians, guitar players, singers, and lawyers, doctors, brain surgeons, heart surgeons, you know, mailmen. Um, it happens. And so I think I trust Radney as a friend and as a producer as well. And so I can be... I can show those emotions to him. I can be vulnerable in the studio with him. I can, if I'm not feeling it that day, I can be honest. Right. There is no, there is no with the relationship between Brad and I. So it definitely was a conscious effort to find that place. And we do have the first single picture frames. Is there a timeline for the rest of the music as to when it'll be released? 
Yeah, really neat. We recorded um, six songs at Dockside Studio where we recorded the eponymous album, Randy Rogers Band, which is by myself a chance and M-Arms. And Stid both were on that record we made at Dockside. Now we're going back to Austin in March to finish at Cedar Creek Studio where we recorded, you know, the Roller Coaster album, which really changed my life. Um, and so it's it's been fun to kind of go back and see those studios and and all those memories come flooding back and and all those whys that we're talking about so the uh the timeline is go back in march um finish record a uh, new single popping as soon as we get it done thank you once again so much for listening and thank you to randy for stopping by and sharing his story be sure to check out their new single picture frames wherever you stream your music please also be sure to check out our website if you haven't already countrymusicmademe.com there you can listen to all of our episodes and you can also sign up for our newsletter to receive exclusive content straight to your inbox just head over to countrymusicmademe.com and hit that subscribe button thanks once again so much for listening and we will see you next time on country music made me (laughs) 